We're looking at Acts chapter 6, and uh, you can find the beginning of Acts chapter 6 on page 914 in one of the Black Pew Bibles. I'm just going to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week. If you missed last week, I would ask you to please find the sermon online and listen to it. It's, um, it feels extra important to me in this season of our church. As we talk about our need for people to serve in specific ways, the need for what the Bible refers to as deacons, what we call ministry team leads, and the need for every person, every member of the church to be serving in one particular way. That feels, feels extra important and heavy on me right now, and I would ask you guys to, to please find that and uh, get yourself up to speed with that. Today, we're going to be picking up um, between the, the passage that tells us how Stephen and the six other guys were chosen as the first deacons and the, the problem that they solved and the way that the church grew. We're picking up um, right after that and right before a very surprising public speech or sermon by Stephen, one of those seven guys. So if you remember, the church was growing really fast in Jerusalem. It had gone from just a few to thousands in a matter of days and weeks. And one of the things that the church was doing was caring for widows. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, widows and orphans are a special class to be considered precious and cared for. And in this case, many of these widows were dependent now on the church for their their daily food. Maybe they were kicked out of their families as they chose to trust in Christ for salvation. Whatever the situation is, there were a whole bunch of widows who were dependent on food from the church, and there was a problem. There were some Greek-speaking, or we called them Hellenist Christians, and there were some Hebrew-speaking Jewish, primarily Christians, and they, they all had a common faith in Christ, but their language and their culture and the way that they had ra- were raised and the schools that they went to and all that, it was different. And there was, this, there was this classism, and in some cases it looked like a racism that was happening. And the, the Greek-speaking Christians, were, their widows were being neglected, we're told, in the daily distribution of the food. And so there was this split brewing in the church. The apostles, the 12 chosen by Jesus to lead the church, recognized that their primary ministry was the ministry of the word, that is, the preaching and the teaching of God's word. And they said, look, if we neglect the preaching and teaching of God's word, the church is going to become less healthy. The people are not going to grow. They're not going to be discipled. We're not going to be the church that we're supposed to be. Therefore, we need other people to take over this food distribution thing that we're not doing a very good job at. We need these people to do it. And uh, the church chose, chose seven guys in order to do this, and Stephen was one of them. Stephen was singled out as the first one named, and also we were told that he was full of, uh, the, full of wisdom and full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, that he was a, an example, a picture of what a deacon, a servant leader should be. He's called to get things done. In this case, the ministry of getting the food to the people in a fair way. But just like any ministry of getting things done in the church, whether it's serving in the nursery or the tech ministry on Sunday morning or helping clean or doing the, the lawn stuff like Hayden, if it's If it's a physical ministry, it's also a spiritual ministry. 
as these guys, Stephen and his six other buddies, as they do the physical ministry of administering, managing this food distribution program, the spiritual ministry of the church advances and goes forward. That is how it has to be. Each one of us is called to serve in a particular way. My calling in life right now, the primary way that I serve this church is through the ministry of the word. That doesn't mean that my calling is more important or higher than anybody else's calling. We'll pick on Hayden again. Hayden mowing the grass is just as important in the overall picture of the life of the church because if Hayden's not mowing the grass and I'm mowing the grass, then I'm not doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing and the church ministry is suffering. We need each other. So my proposal is, to illustrate this, I'm just going to go sit down. Hayden's going to come up and he's going to preach the rest of the sermon to show you that it's really interchangeable in value. He's not even going to look at me. He won't even make eye contact as I say this. Hayden, seriously, thank you for doing the, the grass. We really appreciate it. <laughs> All right. When we, uh, when we ended last week in verse 7, we saw the result of Stephen and his buddies doing a good job with the physical ministry. We saw in verse 7 that this was the result. And the word of God continued to increase spread out among more people, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, like it's already multiplied like crazy, but it multiplies even more, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And I said, I love this passage because there's this radical commitment to Jesus where the priests are walking away from their livelihood, away from their, their call. since kids they've been raised to be priests, and since Jesus is the final sacrifice once and for all, for all of our sins, there is no need for the temple sacrifice system, bringing animals every day, and sacri- that, that's all no longer necessary. And these guys, when they, when they say, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the sacrifice for our sins, they are saying, and I quit my job and I have no idea what I'm going to do now. I'm going to go work at McDonald's, right? That kind of radical faith we are shown as a result of guys distributing food in a fair way. The physical work of the church results in spiritual work of the church. Now, Stephen is singled out in that first part of the passage because he's going to play the leading role for the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 in Acts. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Stephen. Today, we're going we're gonna to look at how God sets up this big speech that Stephen has, and then next week, we'll look at part of the speech, and then we'll do Christmas stuff, and we'll come back to two other parts of the speech, but, but here's, here's the way the speech works out. First, we see today that God is with Stephen. We're going to see how the Holy Spirit is living in Stephen and empowering him to do what God has called him to do. Then when Stephen starts into his sermon, we're going to see how God was with Abraham. You guys are familiar with Abraham because of all the time we spent in Genesis. And then God was with Moses. In each case, God's using these men for specific roles. And we get, um, we get God with King David, and we get God eventually becoming one of us, Emmanuel, one of us. And that's going to be out on January 9th, and Scott Bruns from... Side Hills Christian Camp is going to preach that part of that sermon. 
as we look then at the end of Stephen's sermon. We're going to see how he radically changes gears, and he starts pointing his finger at the religious leaders. They get all mad, and they kill him. And he becomes the first martyr of the Christian church. The stuff that's taking place today is the beginning of that process. Now, it's going to take us a few weeks to get through it. It happens very quickly in the life of Stephen, where he goes from doing a great job serving, and the word of God is spreading all over the place, and he can think, man, God is using me to preaching this first and last sermon to being killed by the enemies of God. Happens fast. So if you look at Acts chapter 6, we're going to go through 8 through 15 today. It's on page 914, and it says this. This is right after the the description of how the, the work has caused the church to multiply. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, this would be surprising to us, right? Because he's called as a servant leader, as a deacon. He's not labeled as one of the apostles. So far, the apostles have had this, this special spiritual power where they're, they're healing people. You know, the crazy superstitious thing where people are trying to just catch the shadow of Peter as he walks through because he's been used by God to heal so many people and the demons are being cast out. It, it looks like the ministry of Jesus, except now it's through the ministry of the apostles. And then suddenly there's a surprise. Stephen, who's not an apostle, he's a deacon, he's included in this description. He says that, that he's full of grace and powers, doing great wonders and signs among the people. <laughs> For those of you guys who are wondering, uh, Owen's brain goes in cycles, and uh, right now he's, uh, he's, his brain's telling him that everything is funny. So he's, he's going to do some laughing. <laughs> we appreciate your patience with him. If you want to talk to him afterwards, tell him a joke. He will think it's so funny. It'd be great. While you're doing that, please tell him to sleep tonight. We would really appreciate that. <clears throat> All right, so signs and wonders. Stephen is full of grace and power. Now, the power part we would expect if we've read so far in Acts because Jesus said to the apostles, he says, wait in Jerusalem, Right? I'm going to send the Spirit, and, and he's going to give you power. So we go back to Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? So you're going to be empowered to be witnesses to spread out around the whole world. And in case you're paying attention, there's been no spreading out around the whole world yet. They're just hanging out in Jerusalem. But the martyrdom, the death of Stephen is going to spark the church, force them out. It's going to start scattering them out into the world, and, and Acts 1-8 is going to start coming true. But at least for right now, Stephen, along with the apostles, he's got the Holy Spirit living inside of him, and he's being filled with power because of that. In this case, power to do these signs and wonders. What does it mean that he's full of grace? Does it just simply mean that he's graceful, like he can dance like a ballerina? Grace in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, is this idea of a special favor, a special blessing, a special gift. So the word grace in Greek is just charis, it means gift, and uh, we could use it in a regular everyday way, like what, what charises did you get for your birthday? What charises have you purchased for people for Christmas, right? But in the New Testament, it takes on a bigger meaning, 
Um, because when Paul is trying to describe the spiritual gifts to us later, he uses that word over and over again. And we now use it in a couple different ways in English. We could talk about a person having a charismatic personality. And what we mean by that is that they kind of draw people to them. They're easy to like and love, and they attract people. We could also talk about a church being a charismatic church. And what we mean by that is that they would say that the, the charismatic gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy and healing, that those are all alive and happening today. And so we take the word from the New Testament, charis, charismatic, and we label the church that way. What, what Luke is telling us here is that Stephen has a special grace, a special gift from God, that God has singled him out, filled him with a particular grace in order to do this particular role that God has called him to. I think this is probably all a surprise to Stephen. He's a regular guy. Like, he's distributing bread, and he finds himself then doing the signs and the wonders, and he's going to find himself standing in front of the Sanhedrin, forced to defend himself. When I think about this description of being full of grace and power, I think about how the apostle John recorded for us back in John 1.14 about Jesus. He's in his poetic first chapter of John, he's talking about how the word of God is eternal, that it actually is God himself, and that the word takes on flesh in Jesus to come and be among us. So John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus himself is full of grace and truth, like Stephen is full of grace and power here. We see through the life of Jesus how Jesus swings that pendulum of invitation and challenge back and forth, back and forth. He's inviting, he's, he's welcoming people in, he's, he's gracious and kind and loving and compassionate, and he's also challenging, and he can speak the truth in a really hard, challenging way, because we need both the invitation and the challenge. Stephen has both the grace and the power. We're going to see in Stephen's sermon that he will lean heavily back and forth on invitation and finish on challenge, and it will cost him his life. Verse 9, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and to the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed or argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So remember, Jesus had said, you guys wait in Jerusalem. The Spirit's going to give you power. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and around the whole earth. So far, they're just hanging out in Jerusalem. But we're told that on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes to the church, that there were Jews from a whole bunch of different places of the civilized world that had gathered in Jerusalem at that time. They heard the message of the gospel from the apostles, and we assume that some of them then went back and sort of primed the pump in their places for the future missionaries to come and more clearly explain the gospel. Look at this next map here. This is all the places named there in Acts for that day of Pentecost were people, Jewish people, living in these places that had come to Jerusalem and they had witnessed the outpouring of the Spirit on the church and the, being able to speak their languages miraculously and all that, that. All of these places here. Now we're given four new locations. We'll go to this next map here. 
These places are named here. Cyrene, in northern uh, Africa, be uh, Libya today. Alexandria in Egypt. Cilicia in what would be uh, southeast Turkey today. And then what's called Asia. Now, we think of Asia as like China, Japan, Korea. This would be Asia Minor. And very specifically, that western side of Turkey, when the Bible says Asia, that's what it means. The main city there is Ephesus. Ephesus will play a big role in the rest of the New Testament. What we're told is that dudes from Ephesus and these three other places argue with Stephen. What are they arguing about? Are they arguing about distributing the bread? No. Are they arguing about the the signs and the wonders? No. Somehow Stephen already has some ministry of the word where he's proclaiming the truth of the gospel and people are arguing with him about it. And it says that they, they can't argue, they can't withstand his wisdom. Remember, when Stephen was chosen as a deacon last week, we saw that he, wasn't, he and his buddies, they weren't chosen because of their managerial skills or their ability to count or administer the program. They were chosen because they were full of wisdom and full of the Spirit. And his wisdom now is coming out in these arguments that he finds himself in. And when Luke records for us here that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, notice that in the, if we go back to that slide, Matthew, in the, in the ESV translation, we get, the, uh, we get the word spirit. We're looking for verses 9 and following here. Yep. So we get the word spirit at the end there, capitalized. Now that's artificial. There are no capitals in the original Greek of the New Testament. That's the translators of the ESV trying to give us a clue, saying this is not simply saying that he's got this nice spirit about him. Or we would say, she's got such a gentle spirit about her. That's not what's being said here. Luke's trying to give us a clue that the spirit of God himself is in Stephen, empowering him in these debates. And the people who are arguing against him, they can't stand against the wisdom, and the Spirit of God, which he's speaking. That'll become important as we get into later verses here. We're also told, not only are these four locations sending guys that are fighting against them, but there's this group called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. So a synagogue would be what we think of as a church building today, a local place, local people come to worship and pray and study the Old Testament in the case of Judaism. If you're going to do your big-time worship in Judaism, you've got to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, offer the sacrifices there. It's a big hoopla. Most people can't do that very often, and so they gather locally in their synagogues. We've got a picture of what a synagogue would look like. This is a simple one. This is based off a synagogue dug up in Capernaum, which is a place that Jesus went many times. So there's one of these, and it's called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. So Slavery was very common, very different than what we think of as slavery, though. So you could sell yourself into slavery to pay a debt or to help you stabilize uh, economically or provide for your family, and there was a contracted period of time. And when that time was up, or if you served really well, or maybe you served in war, or your master is just really pleased with you, then you could, you could be freed early. And apparently some of these freedmen were forming their own synagogue. Maybe they just... They understood life differently than the people that had never been slaves, and so they, they gelled together into their own synagogue. And these people who were slaves but were now free, 
were choosing to use their freedom to argue against what Stephen was saying and doing. They have trouble debating with him. They can't argue against the spirit that he's using or the words that he's saying, and so they are going to attack him. This is an ad hominem attack. It's Latin for against the person or towards the person. We see this all the time. Right? So President Trump loved to call people dummies. Right? His opponents love to call him fat or orange. Right? This has nothing to do with the ideas that are being debated. It's just like, I, I can't argue with what you're saying, and so I'm just going to call you names. That's an ad hominem attack. In this case, these guys cannot argue with the power and the wisdom and the spirit of what is being proclaimed, and so they're going to make this ridiculous attack against Stephen. This is in verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Classic trick, right? Get some guys together in secret. It's okay, you guys are going to accuse them of this in public. And they're colluding behind the scenes to make it happen. What do they accuse him of? Blasphemous words against Moses and God. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is um, speaking untruthfully or sacrilegiously or irreverently against God or against religious things. And so if you were to uh, say, you were to say, oh my God, and you're not actually praying, you're just using an exclamation, that's, that's blasphemy in the sense that you're, you're taking the name of the Lord in vain. You're treating it flippantly instead of the way that God should be treated. Or if you say something that's untrue, like God's a chicken, God is a wimp, God is not in control, God is evil, God can't be trusted. Those are all blasphemous things to say. In this case, Stephen is accused of blasphemy against God, and that probably is going back to the idea of the incarnation of Jesus, that God would take on flesh and become one of us, was received as blasphemous by many of the Jewish people. That Jesus would claim to be the Son of God himself was received as blasphemous. But Stephen's also accused of blasphemy against Moses. What's that mean? Moses, is, he's not just um, the guy who leads the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt a couple thousand years before this time. He's the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament. And so what these guys are saying is that Stephen is contradicting, he's speaking against the teachings of Moses, the foundation of our faith, and particularly to the, to the Sadducees we talked about, who have rejected the rest of the Old Testament, only take the first five books them's fighting words, right? You are, if he's fighting against the only books that we consider sacred, we have to take this man down, right? Now notice, this is, this is one of the first major turning points in the book of Acts. Up until this point, it's the religious elite who are the enemies of Jesus and the enemies of the apostles. 
They're the ones arresting Peter and John, questioning them and beating them and warning them not to speak in the name of Jesus. But in this short passage here, we see that they have stirred up the people against them. This is a sea change in the life of the church. Things are going to rapidly deteriorate to the point where the Christians who, up until this point, they only had to worry about the religious elite, but the people loved them. Suddenly, the Christians are going to be running for their lives, scattered all over the civilized world out of fear. But God will use that to spread the gospel all over the Roman Empire. All right, so back to the accusations. Verse 13. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple, and against the law. When you, when you see the law, it's referring to the first five books of Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Right? Change the customs. They're gonna, he's going to mess up our tradition. This Stephen guy is threatening to undo what we hold dear things that Moses has passed down to us. Now, Jesus himself addressed this. You guys may remember this. In Matthew 5, 17 through 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. These are the words of Jesus himself saying, don't ignore your Old Testament. Don't discount it. It is the word of God. It is not weakened by me. It is fulfilled by me. And so for the, the enemies of Jesus, the enemies of Stephen to say, look, Jesus is, is threatening to undo the traditions of Moses. That's just ridiculous. It is a false claim. And Luke tells us it's a false claim. And he also says that he was accused of speaking against the temple. He says, this man, he says, Jesus threatened to destroy this temple. The guys accusing him of this are the same guys who just weeks earlier stood in the same chamber in the temple building and accused Jesus of threatening to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, which they thought was just ridiculous. Like, they, they couldn't even come up with a new argument. They just recycled the old one. If we look back in, in John chapter 2, Jesus himself is the one that started them down this trail. They didn't just make it up, pull it out of thin air. This is a little bit longer passage. I'll just read it to you. John 2. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The Passover of the Jews, the big celebration, was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house into a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your father's house will consume me. So if we're looking at the invitation and challenge pendulum, Jesus is way over on the challenge side right now. And everybody's paying attention. 
So what's he going to say? So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Or how dare you do this? What authority do you think you have? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Now he's standing in the temple when he says this. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So that's where the accusation comes from. We've heard Stephen quote Jesus saying that he's going to destroy the temple. Well, Jesus said, go ahead, destroy this temple. Not that he would. He's inviting them to do it. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Can you imagine working on a building for 46 years? And in three days, I'm sorry, and you will raise it up in three days? Come on. Then John gives us the commentary. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, Jesus' very body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So they didn't get it when he said it. The disciples didn't. Certainly the accusers, the enemies of him, didn't get it when he said it, and they still don't get it even now after the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're just recycling this argument in order to get people mad because the temple is the center of Jewish life. It's not only the center of religious life, it's the center of social life. It's it's the only place in Jerusalem where you could get thousands of people together in one place, and so if you got something big going on, it's going to have to happen at the temple. It's, it's, uh, it's the center of political life. You know, King Herod's palace is just attached to the side of the temple. It's the center of economic life because of all the tourist money that comes in, of all the people coming for all the, the feasts and the things that are happening. You've got to you know, change your money and buy your sacrifices and all that stuff that's happening. So if Jesus is saying, go ahead and destroy this temple, he's threatening the core of the life of Jerusalem. It's like in Versailles, if we said, um, let's destroy, let's destroy the Catholic church, because 75% of the people in Versailles are Catholic, and our school sucks, and Midmark is doing the work of the devil, right? So you got religious, you got social and school, and you got like the, the economic lifeblood of the town. We're going to attack all of those at the same time. That's what they think Jesus is doing here. And of course, they're really mad about it, right? They're, Jesus is hitting close to home. They don't like it. Well, There's this accusation happening. Stephen's going to now give his big speech, but right before that, there's this pause. Verse 15. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Is Is he sprouted wings? Is he glowing white? Is there angelic music behind him? Well, I don't know that we're to take this as literally as that, I, I think what we're meant to understand is there's something supernatural happening in Stephen. He should be afraid. He should be 
running through scenarios. What am I going to say? How am I going to get myself out of this? Because I see the walls closing in, the knives are coming out, my doom is imminent. What do I need to do? And yet, he's there with a confidence. His, his demeanor is glowing. The Spirit of God is so obvious in him. They're like, this, this, we don't know what to say. It's supernatural. It's like the, the, the face of an angel here. God is somehow at work in Stephen in a supernatural way in this moment. We don't know how to describe it other than to say he looks like an angel. Now, we're not going to get into his sermon until next week. I'd encourage you to go ahead and read it yourself this week. Read through the rest of six and all of seven of Acts, and that way you'll be familiar with it. But now I'm, I'm tasked with trying to apply this passage to our lives today. What are the chances that any of us are going to find ourselves in the situation that Stephen's in? Probably not real great. So what are we to make of this? When we think about persecution and hardship, we tend to think of it as a distant thing. What happens over there? We hear about it all the time in Nigeria, right? Or in Iran, Christians are being beheaded. We, we tend to think that we probably won't have to face persecution and challenge. We probably won't have to face hatred for our faith. And yet Stephen's just a regular guy chosen to distribute bread, who suddenly finds himself in the, in the center of this campaign of hatred that will lead to his death, the persecution of the church, the scattering of Christians all over the Mediterranean region. He did not expect this, right? He's just like, I'm passing out bread, guys. What is going on? Right? As we think about, you know, how, what would it be like for us to be in a persecution or a, a hardship for our faith. I'd like to look at a few quick passages of Scripture here. Luke 9, 23, and 24 is familiar to some of you guys. Jesus said to all who were around him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my follower, you've got to take up your cross. We would say, pick up your electric chair, pick up your lethal injection vial, pick up your noose, and follow me, or your guillotine. That's what he's saying. You're going to lose your life for my sake, but you're going to find it. If Jesus can say that to the crowds, well, we've got to expect that Hardship might be normal for Christians, right? John 15, 18 and 19, Jesus says this. He's, at this point, he's speaking specifically to his closest buddies, the apostles, on the night that he was betrayed. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world or you belonged in the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus saying the world, the system of the world that is opposed to God's kingdom, hates Jesus. And if it hates Jesus, of course it's going to hate those who are following Jesus, who are 
reflecting Jesus, who are trying to live Christ-like lives. And they think, well, I am thankful that he said that just to those guys in the upper room and not to the crowds like the last thing he said, right? Maybe that persecution and hardship is just for them, but a few decades later, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's one of those promises of Scripture that we're not excited to claim, right? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the early Christians, they were uh, widely seen throughout the Roman Empire as cannibals. Cannibals, why? Well, because of communion. Eat the body of Jesus, drink the blood of Jesus. And that becomes the rumor mill goes around the Roman Empire and Christians are rejected from society because they're cannibals. They're also accused of being atheists in the first few decades. Like, wait a minute, what's, how does that work? Well, in the Roman Empire, you had hundreds of different gods and goddesses, but everybody worshipped an idol, an image of their particular god or goddess. And the Christians said, we will have no idols, we will have no images, like we're not even painting a picture of Jesus. And so it was understood that they don't have any gods because the only way that they could conceive of worship was to have an idol or a picture, and they, Christians don't have it, and so they must be atheists. We're probably not going to be accused of being cannibals, and we're probably not going to be accused of being atheists. But if the words of Paul to Timothy are true, if we are desiring to live a life of godliness or being like Christ, we can expect to face persecution. Don't be surprised when it comes. So then we think, how, how will we respond? Like, there's no way I'm going to have the guts and the, the eloquence that Stephen displays in the rest of 6 and 7. How, if I'm called on to defend the faith, how am I ever going to be able to do that? And to answer that, I would just like to Ask two questions. How will you act? And what will you say? So whether it's at work, school, in your family, political environment, violence on the street, whatever, if you face persecution for your faith, how will you act? How will you respond? Peter, writing to a group of people, wrestling with that very idea, feeling as though they are exiles, cast out of society, spoken badly of because of their faith in Christ. He says this in 1 Peter 2.23, when he, Jesus, was reviled, was hated, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Think about Jesus, the God of the universe, in human flesh, praying in the garden on the night that he's betrayed, and he's he's you know he's sweating blood and he's got tears all over the place, and and he knows what's coming, and he's pleading with the Father that if there's another way, please bring that about. The soldiers show up with their weapons, and Jesus, who could have just you know flicked his finger and sent them flying off of the Mount of Olives submits to them, is taken 
peacefully. Well, Peter pulls out his sword, chops the guy's ear off. Jesus puts the ear back on. Then he's taken peacefully, right? Jesus stands before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the same guys who are accusing Stephen now. Jesus stands before them, and he's accused of things, and he remains silent in front of them. He is hated. He's reviled. He does not return that to them. He suffered, and yet he did not threaten he continued, in the words of Peter, entrusting himself to him who judges justly, to the Father. Peter shares that because that is our example. Will we act like Jesus when we face hardship and persecution? When your best friend decides they don't want to have anything to do with you, when you lose your job or you lose your promotion or you're banned from social media or your brother won't talk to you or whatever it is, will you act in a way that lines up with Jesus? Or will you act in a different way? And the last question, what will you say? This is one thing to act in a certain way, and it's another thing to respond in a certain way. Now, the, the preacher in me wants to say, get ready. Study your Bible Study books on apologetics, which is how to argue for the faith. Learn the arguments of your opponents. Train yourself. Practice with each other so that when you are in that situation, you are ready to rumble. But the Bible itself actually gives us a very different call. This is where the application part really kind of falls apart. But it's the Word of God. Matthew 10. 16 through 20, Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Thank you, Jesus. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When, not if, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That doesn't mean you should just put your Bible on your shelf and ignore it. Right? What it's saying is, when you find yourself in that situation, where you're forced to defend your faith, where you're forced to, to speak up as a witness for Jesus Christ, trust that the Spirit of God, what Jesus says right now, the Spirit of God in you will give you what you need to say. As well as you could prepare, put all the arguments together in your mind, get all the words just right, and as your enemy is speaking, you know where he's going, you've already planned your counterattack, as good as you could be with that, that's not so impressive when you compare it to the Spirit of God living inside of you, giving you what to say. And that's what we're going to see in Stephen as he goes into his speech, that the Spirit of God is living inside of him, showing him, giving him exactly what to say. And that same Spirit is living inside of you if Jesus has saved you. And when you turn from your sins, you put all your trust in 
in Christ alone for salvation, that the Spirit of God came to dwell in you permanently. He will never leave you even when you're being flogged in the synagogues, as Jesus says here. The Spirit is with you, and when it's time to speak, He will give you what you need to say. Isn't that an amazing promise? Now, I don't know if we're going to find ourselves in that situation. Maybe none of us in this room will. Maybe things will fall apart and most of us in this room will find ourselves in situations like that. Will we respond by acting in a way that mirrors Jesus? And will we trust that the Spirit of God living inside of us, never leaving us, will do what Jesus himself has said he will do, that he will give us the words that we need? I pray that that would be true of us if we find ourselves in that situation. I'm going to pray. Daniel's going to play some music. We're going to sing our last song. And, and while he's playing some music instrumentally, there are going to be a couple questions on the screen for you. Matthew will put up. And if you're wondering what to be praying about, what to be reflecting on, these can help guide that reflective prayer time for the 30 seconds or a minute or so that we have there. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, even as it's frustrating to me that there's not a particularly good challenge that I can tell people, go do this, it still it reflects the gospel. It, it shows us that, that the important work is really, it's done by you, it's not done by us. This is not about us being prepared and ready and having the great arguments, but it's about you living in us, working through us. Lord, many of us in this room have faced hardship because of our devotion to you. Some of us haven't faced any of it yet. We know from your words, Lord Jesus, that we should expect it. So we ask that you would be uh, preparing us, shaping us, uh, that we would know you well, that we would love you so much that it would be unthinkable to deny you. Our lives would mirror you in such a way that it becomes second nature to respond in the way that you respond. And then when we're called to speak, Lord, to, to defend you, to, to stand in front of accusers and speak the truth of the gospel, would you help us to, to trust you? You are living inside of us, giving us the words as you say you will. In Jesus' name, amen.